So today we're continuing the series in 1 Peter 1. So if you have the word, open it up with me and you can follow along. We're reading from um, 1 Peter 1, 13 to 23. And it says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed for the future futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers of God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God." Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Thanks, Yana. Good morning, everyone. I want to extend my welcome especially if I haven't met you. My name is James Dawson. I have the pleasure and privilege of pastoring this young church plant. We launched last July with a heartbeat, a vision for everyone and anyone to find home in Jesus. So if you've walked in here brand new, uncomfortable, not knowing what Christianity is about, maybe with some pain, with a limp, uh, with some shame, you are in the right place. You're in the right place. You're in a safe place. And I really just want to say that you're welcome here. You're welcome here. Before I jump into a word, into the word, into the preach, I really want to want to pray. Uh, I want to anchor to be a church that isn't ignorant of what's going on in the nation, in the world, and for us not to feel overwhelmed by what's going on, but for us to f- turn to prayer and to call out to a God that is mighty and is powerful and hears our prayers. So please join with me as I pray just for what's going on in Israel and for what's happening in our nation. God, our our refuge and our strength, we pray for the people of Israel and Palestine amid the escalating violence. We pray for those killed and injured and that you would be near to the brokenhearted. We pray for those who are grieving, that they may know your ever-present help. We pray for the protection of those who have been taken hostage And as they walk through this dark valley, may they fear no evil. We pray for the civilians. May they know that their help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. And we pray for those in leadership. May you guide them along right paths. We also want to pray this morning a blessing over our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters. And for any of those either side deflated, discouraged this morning, we want to be a people that mourn with those that mourn. And King Jesus, we need your help for this to be a country of peace and unity. And we ask all of this trusting in your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So this morning, as we turn our attention to 1 Peter, 
second week of Scandalous Witness. Uh, this is a really potent series for us. We're in a moment here in Australia where Christianity is in the minority. It's the smallest percentage in its nation's history. And I don't need to beat this drum. If you're a Christian in this country, you know what it's like to feel the, that, that feeling, the, the temperature rising, the blush on our cheeks when we're challenged with what we truly believe. And this is what's crazy. We're not the first Christians to feel that. <laughs> we're not the, we're on, on, sometimes we have this chronological arrogance of like, we're, we're the only ones that have felt this. This is outrageous. And yet we open God's word. And our, our, our brothers and sisters that in 1 Peter were in a very, very similar context to us. Very similar context. And so, so God's word today for us, I think, will be pertinent and relevant. The dominant theme of 1 Peter, as Tim Brookman opened, us, opened up to us last week, is hope. That's the dominant theme. We're going to see it laced through is hope. And hope, even as I say the word, it can feel a bit soft and ambiguous kind of word. We don't always know what to do with it. Uh, but part of the story of First Peter is that hope is one of the most defining concepts about how we live. It's one of the most defining concepts about how we live, what we hope in, what we think the future is going to be about. And his whole thing that he's going to be saying here today is that people of hope, what we think is going to happen in the future will impact how we live today. I don't know if you guys have thought about the future, but what we put our hope in determines how we live today. So this is, this is the idea that I want to start with that we find in 1 Peter. What you believe about the future determines how you live. What you believe about the destiny, what, what, what we think is going to happen in the future of our lives, whether it's just going to end with darkness, whether it's all, you know, the whole universe is going to implode, so live large and merry, or we think that we're, we're on this kind of sense of progress, we need to pause today and think about what do we believe about the future and how is it impacting how we live today? So the question I want to start with this morning is, what future do you believe in? I wonder if you ever thought about that existentially. It's kind of an existential question. Maybe in your uni days, looking up at the stars, camping, oh, what was where's this all going? Where's the cosmos going? How does this all end? And what future do you believe in? And I think particularly for those in the room of you that are Christians and follow Jesus, follow his ways and teachings, I wonder if what we profess that we believe about the future is actually impacting our life today. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, about, of a father in Israel and he was in his bunker for three days. And it just hit me even harder because he had two young daughters I've got one young daughter, another daughter on the way, and they hadn't eaten for three days. And I was just filled with so much sadness and anger and fear about the future. Genuinely, it's probably the first time sincerely in years, maybe decades, that I've, I have a fear about a global conflict. And I can't help but feel this sense of tightness. And inevitably, even this tightness that led to a cynicism, even a detachment, and a despair. And so I want us to ask ourselves the question first, as, as a culture, as a society, what can we hope in? What can we hope in? Many of you who have been Christians for a few years might know of N.T. Wright. 
also goes by Tom Wright, masterpiece of a book, Surprised by Hope. I just want to fully put my weight behind this book. If you haven't read it, it's a must read for a Christian. N.T. Wright has this book and he argues that there's two schools of thought, two stories, two mythologies that we have in our world about what we put our hope in. And he puts them as progress and escape. These two dominant stories, these mythologies that are in our modern world about progress and escape. So let me just briefly unpack. I'm not going to do justice. That's in the book. Open it up. It's going to blow your mind. Progress. So progress is this dominant story we've inherited really for the last 500 years. Global spread, science, rationalism, industry, education, technology, Western forms of government, lots of great things that have bore really good fruit. And this is a story that we're sold. This world is going and marching on to this ever-glorious future. You know, no, you don't want to be sitting at a cafe talking to your mate, and you don't want to be on the wrong side of the question, do you believe in progress? You know, you're a Christian, you're still in the dark ages, do you believe in progress? And I don't think any of us want to be on that side of the question. And I think this plays out in lots of different ways, maybe political activism, and if we get the right person at the right time with the right amount of seats, we can finally be able to right the wrongs and get back on progress. This plays out maybe in technology for a lot of us. You know, man, I'm reading that one day we might be able to download our consciousness onto a hard drive and just live forever and defeat death ultimately. You know, we've got, we've got shipping down to like the same day. We've got that bad boy down to like 20 minutes for some of us. Or maybe it's the reversal of aging. You know, I'm going to join the workout cults of Sydney in order to advance as far as I possibly can with my body and the attractiveness of my immediate social circle, and there'll be this self-actualization of the glo- glorious future that I want. But I think the problem for us, for the many of us, that the story of progress actually is hanging on by a thread. And N.T. Wright goes on to say that even though for many of us who live in Sydney, one of the, the most beautiful, affluent countries in the world... And you guys live on the northern beaches, which is this tiny peninsula that is supposed to be even more affluent and beautiful. Why don't we feel like we have this glorious future? Why do we live in an area that has one of the highest rates of teen suicide in Sydney? Why do we live in an area that has an above average addiction to opioids? What's that about? If we are in this moment of glorious progress. And even if, even if we scientifically break it down, even the scientists know that they say the cosmos, cosmos is moving towards a cold, dark collapse. And so I don't think cos- progress does seem to actually be built into the fabric of the universe. And I think it benefits the few people in that story. And let me qu- quickly unpack what N.T. Wright talks about with escape. So man... If that out there is not progressing, let's just pull back. Let's move to the beaches, you know, van life. You know, if secular culture doesn't offer anything substantial, at least I can control myself. I can become very self-focused. We can start thinking about my priorities, my story, and the things that are going to be best for me. Darwinism, survival of the fittest. In so many ways, this narrative plays out of escape. 
to be in many ways, but I think one of the big things is kind of the bucket list now. You know, if the life, man, who cares? If I can't even afford a house and we're all going to a dark, cold collapse, let's just backpack through Indonesia. See you later, mum and dad. I'm draining the bank account. Let's at least get some good memories. And I think even pertinent for Christians, I think Christians unhelpfully err towards this, the Christian versions of progress. We see this kind of take back the culture, take back the government, Christianize all the institutions, you know, scripture in every school. This can kind of be this overreaching of the Christian worldview onto society. And I think even pertinent for Christians on the northern beaches, this escape narrative. And I think it looks more innocent, but it's actually a secular worldview where we retreat into our communes, into our mini cults, into our villages. We put the walls up, head in the sand. And I didn't even know what's happening in Israel. Stay in comfort, minimize the effects of the bad world out there until Jesus comes back. And as I was reading N.T. Wright and reflecting on the stories and the scripts that we have about the future, as I open up the New Testament in 1 Peter, none of these stories are in the New Testament. None of these narratives. If I spoke to a person that lived in the first century about the things that we're being challenged with, their mindsets about they, how they perceive these frameworks wouldn't have it. Both of these pictures of progress and escape aren't in the New Testament. And so I think we need to think about, before we jump into the word, how are these two scripts here, or progress or escape, bled into our lives, bled into our decision-making about relationships, about money, about justice. But is there another way? Is there a, a third story? Give me something, James, give me something. Welcome to church. Today we're going to talk about renewal. This is the idea that we see in 1 Peter, the renewal, the restoration, the resurrection to new, use New Testament language. This story that Christians are meant to have a different story, not progress, not escape, but resurrection and the renewal of all things. This is the Christian story. So zooming into our, our text of 1 Peter, I want us to remember this isn't the first time that Christians have been dealing with challenge like we are today and in 1 Peter. The Roman Empire had rapidly globalized, lots of cultures fused into one, like a third of humanity lived in this one society. Hellenized culture, common language, common currency. The elite groups were yelling, Pax Romana, Rome will protect you. It's all good. You're in the golden age. Progress, progress, progress. Under the surface, there's taxation, exploitation, slavery, cultural imperialism, and this sort of disorientation of hope. And suddenly you can imagine being a Christian in the Roman world. This is the context that Jesus turns up. Jesus turns up in this context. And he starts teaching, and he's murdered, executed, and he's resurrected in this context. And this is what Peter says to the church and to us today. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Sister so saying, the context that you're in, I know that you're in the minority I know the pressure that you're under with minds that are alert and fully sober. So not escape. Set your hope on what? On the grace to be brought to you 
when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The early Christians did not believe in progress. They did not believe in escapism. They believed that God was going to do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus. I want us to catch that. Catch that. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just a one-off thing, that Jesus is going to come back and God's going to do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus, brought it back to life. There's going to be renewal and resurrection. If you're new to church, you're in the right place. Welcome. I just want to give you a quick overview. Jesus died. I just want to get that out of the way. Jesus died. This was not progress. This was not the Messiah narrative they had hopes for. This was disappointment. This was pain. This is naive hope. And then, surprise, Jesus comes back. Great news, right? Amen? Great news. He comes back. And something that's really important that I think modern people project onto the Bible, 2,000 years ago, they knew that dead people stay dead. They were smart enough. They understood that dead people are meant to stay dead. So someone resurrecting from the dead is big news. It's supposed to smash frameworks. It's supposed to change how we live. And so the challenge for us today, as we think about how this is received for the early Christians and how this is supposed to speak into us, I think the big difference of the worldviews in 1 Peter compared to us is, is there a creator that intervenes in the direction of justice? Or is this world on its own? And is there a God out there that intervenes in the direction of renewal and justice? Or is this all there is? And so Jesus, what he's trying to, what he does in his resurrection as he's raised to be the Messiah, the Lord, the world's true king, Jesus is raised, God's new creation has begun. And we of his followers are meant to partner with him in the renewal of all things. This is, this is so important for us to get. This is so, so important for us to get. Why? Because this is so much more than us putting our hand up at a camp once upon a time, saying, I confess that Jesus is Lord, you know, my sins are wiped, and then I just live like everyone else and I wait for Jesus to come back. This is so much bigger than that, that one day there's going to be resurrection. If this is the future, one day Jesus is going to come back and there is restoration and renewal, we must partner with him there is a job for us to do. There is an escapism. So if we have to ask ourselves this question, if the future is resurrection and the renewal of the cosmos, does that radically change how we engage with the world? And we have to understand what the New Testament is talking about here when it talks about resurrection of Jesus, unleashing a new type of people into the world. I've got these images that might help us think about this. Sorry about the Pixels Bible project. I was kind of screenshotting this. There's this mindset here of this is, this is heaven. This is, the Christian, this is the Christian life that's maybe in the future, and it's kind of up there somewhere, but it's ethereal. This is God's domain, eternal life, kingdom of God, heaven. And then there's our domain on the world, in the world here, particularly in the past, but some of us might believe today, and we're separate and this is where there's sin and there's suffering and there's war and there's death and there's grief. And we, we live often like these, this is today, this is separation. But this is what 1 Peter's getting at, really the whole New Testament. Not just the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus was this breaking in. There is now this overlap 
and it's not a full overlap yet, but Lord, haste that day. But there is now this overlap of heaven coming to earth in the resurrection of Jesus. And that is what the Christians are meant to do, that we're meant to have this overlap more and more and make this more pertinent. Make the kingdom of God breaking more into this world because, not because of I'm up here saying that, not because of anything fluffy that we read, because of the resurrection, the historical resurrection of Jesus. Him raising from the dead and ascending is saying there's this breaking in of the kingdom of God to this world. And so what our world needs is, isn't Christians that abandon hope and escape, nor this kind of triumphal progress. We need people that are about renewal and resurrection. This is the Christian story that asks for a response about how we live. And listen, if we get this right, if we get our hope right, it's so hard. Trust me, I get it. Watching the news this week, it's genuinely so hard. But if we can get our imagination right from the Bible that one day Jesus will come back and make all things new, if that is the future that is promised and inaugurated and a reality because of the resurrection of Jesus, if that is where things are going, the future, that should impact how we live today, dramatically impact how we live today in a new type of way. And so Peter continues, and he has these beautiful, beautiful ways that this is supposed to have implication for the Christian in this world. He says, for us to break in and to be a people that are different, breaking in the kingdom of heaven. We need to be a people that fix your hope. He commands us to be holy and to love deeply. And I want us to imagine, imagine a people that are filled with hope, that are holy, that are distinct, and that love deeply. And so we're going to see this firstly in fixing your hope. We saw this in verse 13, but I want to zoom in here. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope. And I think one of my my favorite, I think stronger, sharper uh, translation of that is to to fix your hope. How How do we fix our hope on Jesus returning? How do we how do we persevere when we're in the minority? How do we how do we anchor your hope? Pardon the pun, on something that is in the future. I was trying to think of a strong analogy here about how how we're meant to fix our hope to persevere when things are hard. And I think, man, Romans 8, the Bible actually gives a really beautiful analogy, and it's actually pregnancy. My beautiful wife Callan, we're pregnant, 34 weeks pregnant, November 29. You know, there's beauty, but there's chaos coming. And I was thinking, no one, this idea of hope, of us fixing our hope, how do we persevere through times of trial? How do we persevere when we're in the minority? One Peter's saying we need a hope. You need to fix your hope on what's happening in the future. That's how you persevere. And I think that is how pregnant women get through pregnancy. No one goes to a hospital. No one goes to a hospital and says, can I please sign up for nine months of nausea, sciatica pain, peeing 15 times every night, hormone swings, disrupted sleep, and then huge, intense pain at the end. No one signs up for that, except if there is hope at the end. Amen, mums. That's the only reason you endure, because at the end of it, there's going to be beauty 
and life. That is how we endure the Christian life. Why do we do it? Because we fix our hope that there one day, one day, Jesus will make everything new. And that is how we endure times of trial and persecution. So we're meant to be people that fix our hope on the future. That's how we persevere. 1 Peter continues, he says here, to be holy. This is what it looks like to be a believer in this context. He says, be holy. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Here's the point that he's trying to say here. Your hope determines your holiness. Your hope determines your holiness. What's the point of being holy, of being different, of resisting sin? What's the point if there isn't this future where things will be made new? Most of us put holiness in moral categories. You know, right, wrong, good, bad, sin, shame. And it's, it's not not that. <laughs> Double negative there. You're not, you're not, not going to get Randy Jackson's autograph. It's not not that. But holiness is so much more. I want us to recapture what holiness is. What 1 Peter is saying here is that holiness, what's the definition of holiness? Set apart. It's meant to be set apart. To be formed to be something different. To be formed and set apart to be someone that is for the future. To be a person of renewal and resurrection. Man, one of the best definitions of holiness I ever found was this, to become the type of person for whom God's new creation will be a place that you enjoy. Isn't that profound? To actually become a person that, man, when resurrection and renewal comes, if that's coming in the future, I want to be a person that enjoys that. Let's be, I just wanted to make that even sharper. It's becoming fluent in kingdom culture. That's what holiness is, to be set apart, to be different. Can't unpack this um, more because it's a bit of a spoiler alert. But the rest of 1 Peter, he's going to pick up on this theme that we're a citizen of heaven. You guys heard that, heard that language before, that we're actually a citizen of heaven. So when you become a Christian, you actually lose a passport and you pick up a new passport of a whole new person, a whole new nation, if I want to use that illustration. And we, as, as, as my mother did, who immigrated from Korea to Australia, as you come to Australia, she had to learn all these new customs, she had to learn the language, she had to learn these weird idioms that Aussies have. So she had to learn this new culture. And so what 1 Peter is saying, that we becoming holy, becoming distinct, to be holy just as our God in heaven's holy. So having a culture of the kingdom of heaven to earth, we actually need to be a citizen of heaven. And so holiness is, is not just about you, it is about you and your decisions, but it's so much bigger than that. It's inviting us to be formed into a person that when the resurrection comes, when Jesus returns, or we pass and we see Jesus face to face, we have this, we have this weight of glory. We have this weight of glory. And this is what I want us to think about. What would it look like if we had this resurrection view of what God is doing in us now? through his eyes. So let me say that again. Imagine if we had 
eyes, resurrection eyes, kingdom eyes of what God is doing in each of one of us now. And for, to call each other out saying, this is what holiness looks like. It's not, it is making that decision, resisting sin, but it's so much more than that for you. This isn't who you are. This isn't who you are. This isn't the identity that you have. And for you to be so much more than that. If Man, if you just had the eyes for how God sees you and what you're going to look like in, at the resurrection and the renewal of all things, it would dramatically change the decisions that we make today. So this is what Peter's saying. This is what it looks to be a person of hope. It looks like fixing your hope, being a person of holiness set apart. And lastly, to love deeply. Now that you have purified your, yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. This, is, this isn't who you are. You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God. Man, do we need this word for us today? Isn't there a more important timely reminder that our faith has to find its fruit in love. Our faith has to find our fruit in agape love. Man, if you are reading the Bible in a way that leads to dehumanizing others, you are not following the way of Jesus. It is all throughout, is all throughout the New Testament. If, you, if your theology isn't moving you towards God and others in love, we are not reading the Bible correctly. And don't we need that moment this week that any worldview, any faith for us, the Christian, it has to lead to agape love of others. That is the fruit of our faith. Now, this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep beating this drum until it's in our muscle memory. Anchor Beaches, I've, all, I've said this multiple times, what is the measure of a successful church? What is the measure of a successful church? Now, we, our, our leaders got together last Saturday. We got to dream and we got to plan. It was a really beautiful, profound time. Gave up a whole Saturday. And you know, one of the deepest fears that I had going into it, I had this kind of secret seed fear, and I wasn't going to fish for it. I was just going to see where the leaders went. I was nervous that every single new strategy we had, any, every single new plan we had, was all about bums on seats, bigger budget, more growth. And that somehow the idea of progress has crept into the modern church. And don't we need a reminder that the measure of success of a church isn't bums on seats or attendance in our GCs or how many followers we have on social media, or how big our staff is, even the quality of teaching or worship or the quality of your leaders. The measure of a successful church is love. That is the, me- that is the measure, Anchor Beaches. That is ultimately how we will be measured for our maturity as a church. The measure is our love for one another. This week, Bellrose GC, I have the joy of leading that. And I had this, so this was actually last Tuesday. I had this really beautiful, profound moment that if you weren't looking, you would have missed it. Uh, We didn't meet for two weeks. GC's broke uh, during the school holidays. And as everyone was coming back, I was really excited to see everyone. And one couple came back and they had had a hard month. And they've had a hard six months. The GC knew about it. But as they walked back in to the house, carrying almost enough from their hands to their chin was just all this Tupperware. They just walked into GC with all this Tupperware. 
And they said, oh, thank you. That one's, that one's yours. I want to make sure you get that one back. This one's yours. And without me even knowing that all these people in the GC had just cooked meals for them, dropped it off at their doorstep. That's the metric of the healthy church, that it will be love, dropping off a meal when people are struggling. And in that moment, I saw the beauty of this church, this, the, the amount of Tupperware that's returned after a break. I want us to imagine a church, instead of microwave transactional relationships, it's one of agape self-giving love. You know, imagine a church that goes beneath the surface where we can take our masks off, where authenticity and realness is our operating system. You know, imagine a church that's not based on preference or convenience, but devotion and vulnerability. And imagine a church that's quick to forgive and accept a responsibility for our brokenness. And imagine a church where anyone could walk into a home, be offered a warm meal, be seen and loved. And imagine a church where the spiritual wanderer and the wayward could truly find home. And imagine a church that is fluent in kingdom culture and love is our operating system. And so 1 Peter is, is challenging us, what future are you meditating on? And what story are you adopting and living out of today? As we finish, I just want to give us a vision uh, not from my words, but from Scripture. And there's this book at the end of the Bible called Revelation, and it actually tells us how everything's going to end. It gives it to us. 1 Peter gives us a taste. Let me tell you what's happening in the future and where we're heading. Revelation 21, verse 3. Look. God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things have passed away. This is the future that one day there will be renewal and restoration. You know how intimate it is to touch another person's face? If I came up to you after church and I touched your face, you'd never come back. <laughs> this is the wrong church for you. Especially post-COVID, you're like, no touching. But this picture that Revelation 21 gives us, that Jesus, he will wipe. He will touch your cheek and he will wipe away every tear. And there'll be no more death and evil and suffering for the old order of things have passed away. This is where we're heading. And the reminder here, as it links to 1 Peter, is that the resurrection of Jesus is the breaking in of this. This can begin now as we become people that are fluent in kingdom culture. Let's invite Jesse up as we transition to response. Uh, we, we have a few different ways that we respond to the word here at Anchor. Uh, one way we're going to do all corporately together is worship, but we're also going to re respond in prayer. <coughs> and there are going to be a few people on the side, including myself, uh, that would love uh, to pray with you. And one thing that I was really stirred for us in how we respond today is, amen, we're going to worship and we're going to sing. But I really have it on my heart for, to pray for those that have lost hope. That's the whole theme of today, is hope. 
And for those of you that have lost hope, uh, you think about the state of your life, you think about the state of the world, and it's too hard to hold on to this idea of resurrection and renewal. And so I'm just going to live like the rest of the world. And that loss of hope, I think, leads to cynicism. And when we lose hope, so easy to become cynical. And once cynicism takes root, we become cold and apathetic. And so I just want to pray right now, but particularly if that's stirred in you, if you're in a season of disappointment, perhaps disappointment, disappointed in, in God, in maybe what church has been, and you're disappointed and lost faith in where the world is heading, I would love to pray for you, people to the sides. But I'd love for us just to respond in song. And Jesse has um, yeah, really pertinently challenged us with some songs today to fix our hope on the resurrection and to challenge us. If Jesus did die and it was the inbreaking of the kingdom, the two circles coming together and that lives and flows out of today, how is that changing how we live? How is that impacting our decisions? So I invite you guys to stand and I'm going to pray for us and we're going to respond in song. Uh, King Jesus, we just want to lift you up now. Thank you that when things were dark, when we had indeed lost hope, and our hope even became darker and deeper when you died, Jesus, you resurrected, and you started to reverse and re-engineer the whole fabric of this world. And so I just want to pray right now for anyone in this room, anyone listening on the podcast that has lost hope, uh, particularly lost hope in you. Uh, they're just disappointed in where their life is at, in what they thought you would offer, and that you would give them fresh hope, not based on my words, but based on the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of Jesus and the renewal of all things. So Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would come in power now and minister in this room. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.